Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm your social worker with the microphone. I'm Catherine Zox, and you are listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. As most of you know, you can listen to the show every Wednesdays from 10 to 11 Eastern Time live, and we archive the show at the end of the day. Joining me this morning is Michael Levin, author of What Your Kids Are Really Doing Online. We're going to be talking about his article. He says that, uh, and most of us know this, the Internet uh, affords children endless opportunities, but there's also a lot of things that they can do that get them into serious trouble, as most of us are aware of who have kids. Uh, And they can download things they shouldn't be downloading and seeing things they shouldn't be seeing, but there's good news. Kids also uh, have a a wide range of opportunities on the Internet, uh, and a lot of that has to do with a lot of good stuff, and it's called teaching, and we're going to be talking about that. Later on in the show, uh, my second guest is Frederick Kaufman. He is a um, contributing editor to Harper's Magazine, and his new book is Bet the Farm, How Food Stopped Being Food. Uh, so he's going to address the simple question, why can't delicious, inexpensive, and healthy food be available to everyone on earth uh, when we grow enough to feed the world twice over, but we don't seem to be able to uh, provide food for everyone, inexpensive and healthy food. So we're going to be discussing his book later on in the show. But first, Michael Levin, nice to have you on the show this morning. Catherine, thank you very much for having me. Yeah, it's great. Okay, so this is a question I think, uh, obviously, I think most parents today wrestle with this, the the question of, you know, okay, the Internet, it gets a really bad rap, and it's always like how much you should allow your kids to be on the Internet without supervision, and it's all kind of a lot of negative stuff, like always trying to kind of put the kibosh on what kids are doing on the Internet because we make the assumption that it's bad stuff that they're seeing or listening to. But uh, you have a whole different... uh, what do we say, rap or twist or uh, <laughs> a positive spin on this? Yeah, I do. And, and, and uh, first of all, I, I, I agree with everybody who's saying that the Internet is basically a sewer line running directly into your kids' bedrooms. And uh, we have four children, 12 down to four. We don't let them use uh, computers in their bedrooms. They've got to be out in the sunshine, which is to say in the family room uh, or the dining room or something like that if they're going to be online because there is so much that really is just so incredibly inappropriate and, and, and dangerous for kids. So I, I, I don't want to come off like I'm some sort of, uh, oh, no, the Internet is per- perfectly safe. It, it, that's not true at all. So, the, so parents are, are wise to monitor carefully what their kids do online. What I'm saying is, and, and I had no idea about this, there's another function that the Internet has, which is really an amazing, amazing thing, and that is that kids are teaching other kids about the things that they love. 
and they're posting videos. They're posting how-to videos on YouTube, and they're, they're putting up uh, articles. They're doing all kinds of things to demonstrate what they love and to teach other kids how to do those things, whether it's origami or unicycling or who knows what. And then they're also looking at these videos and learning how to do things from other kids. So you have this entire universe out there of kids teaching kids how to do stuff. And this is, there's never been anything like that in human history. Michael, how did you discover this? How did you, how do you, you know, when did you first realize that this was happening? You know, it's a great question. I wandered into uh, the family room to see what my kids were doing <laughs> online. Well, you have your own research group. They got four kids, right? From yeah, four we, four yeah. yeah. I, I say I don't have a lot of kids. What we have is a lot of opinions yeah. in the house. And uh, one day I came in, and, and I saw, and, and, I, and I was about to say, hey, what's going on? And one of them shushes me. No, no, don't say anything. He's making a video. Well, his brother was making a video about how to do a particular difficult piece of origami, which is one of the things that my sons love. And sure enough, he's standing there, and he's demonstrating how to do this. And then when he was finished, he uploaded the video to YouTube, which is a skill that escapes his 54-year-old father. And, uh, and then they explained to me that they put up these videos, and, and uh, they're in a competition with another kid in their school to see who can have the most followers. Uh, and and they've got kids around the world watching these videos and following them and learning from them about how to do these things. So that's, that's how I first realized this was going on. Michael, okay, you said that he's with one of your boys. He was in composition, competition with another kid in his school for you know the the the, uh, the video for the origami. Now, is that sponsored by the school? Does the teacher know about it, or is this something that your kids just do on their own, or what? It's something that the kids do on their own. It's just it it it. it when I was a kid, it was all about what baseball cards did you have, and today it's about how many people follow your YouTube channel. That's what demonstrates coolness in class. It's not a school-sanctioned activity, at least not in my kids' uh, schools at this time. It's just something that they do. And, uh, you know, it, it, people, people, old, older people, if they've got an issue or problem, they're going to call an expert. They're going to, they might look something up online. But, they're, but for the most part, they're going to try to get information the old-fashioned way. They're going to find a guy. And people who are in their 20s and younger, and certainly kids, uh, their first point of reference is a screen. Their first, their first way of, of, of learning about the world is there's got to be somebody online who already knows this, and it's probably on YouTube. So I don't have to look at words. I can look at a person and see that person describing things. All right, so, so I'm what, one of those old people that you're, just, that you're talking about who says, <laughs> find the guy, okay, something breaks down, whatever I need, okay? So it's like I've got to call the guy and I have to right. find him, okay? And we used to say that, actually, and it's funny that you mention that because I, my boys used to say, okay, mommy, find the guy because my kids are a lot older than you and they're in their 30s, but, um, but we don't need to do that anymore. So let's say I or someone in our generation wants to access those YouTube videos. Well, what do we do? How do we utilize it? Can we? Well, sure. You, can, you, can, uh, you just simply go to YouTube and you punch <laughs> in whatever you're looking for. And I, I like to say that when something breaks in my home, I have two tools in my toolbox, a checkbook, and a phone, and I call the guy, and he comes over and fixes it. But if I had the slightest desire to figure out how to uh, fix a leaky faucet, and I don't, uh, or mow my own lawn, which I don't, uh, I could easily find YouTube videos of people who are really adept at these things and really expert at these things, and not necessarily famous. And that's the interesting thing. They're not necessarily doing it for the money. They're just putting up knowledge because they want to, which is kind of what the Internet is to begin with. It's just one great 
library of everybody putting up everything that they know. The problem is that you've then got to sort through it. But the thing is that if, you're, if, if you wanted to learn how to do a piece of origami or you wanted to learn how to fix that leaky faucet, you can take a look at all the numbers of, of, uh, of people who have uh, either watched or subscribed to a particular uh, video or video channel on YouTube, and, and you see, oh, this guy's got 160,000 views. He must know what he's talking about. So I mean, I had a leaky faucet yesterday, and I called the guy, and that's what... <laughs> Well, don't call me. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, that's just it. The thing is that I don't really want to fix a faucet, but if I'm 10 and I want to do a particular origami uh, trick or, or, or magic trick, because my kids are also into magic, uh, that kid is, is going to stumble onto my son's uh, YouTube channels. And at that point, uh, he's either going to look at the thing, which is going to increase the page views, which is going to increase my kid's uh, sense of coolness as he walks down the hallway in school, or, the, or, the, or that viewer is actually going to subscribe to the channel, which means they'll get some sort of notification, I believe, uh, any time my son posts a new video. So these communities are developing where kids are teaching kids for free how to do stuff they like to do. And, you know, we live in an era where you can go down the street of a... I live in Irvine, California. It's a very uh, a cul-de-sac-oriented... It's a kid farm in Orange County. And you can, you can drive for days and never see a kid. So kids aren't encouraged to play outdoors. There's so much fear of danger and, and, and kidnapping and all the terrible stuff you, you, you hear about, uh, unlike our generation where, you know, you went and played outside. So this is the way that kids are kind of breaking down walls and playing with each other. In a weird way, this is how they're forming community, uh, one video at a time. And they're forming community, obviously, not just on the cul-de-sac, though, but they're, as you say, in your article, I mean, they're forming communities around the world. So, I mean, you're teaching somebody in China or... India or wherever it is, and they are doing the same, right, with the YouTube views. So it's, it just opens up a whole world of teaching and cooperation, as you describe it, and cooperation instead of compensation. And because uh, I want to talk about that. What does that say for the future of these kids in terms of getting jobs? I mean, they're used to cooperating, giving out their stuff free. We're not used to doing that. We always always has to do with compensation, and you do something, and then you get paid for it. In this case, you don't. Yeah, this is, it's illustrative of the way the world has changed. It used to be that if, you, if somebody wanted you to do something, uh, you, you, they, pay, they had to pay you. And today, uh, it's, a, it's a world of give before you get. You've got to give information or you've got to give guidance or you've got to even give services to prove that you really are the right person, that you're the guy or you're the woman or you're the person. And then at that point, the compensation conversation happens. So today... Uh, you really are in a position where you've got to demonstrate that you are the person before anybody's going to pay you. But the thing is that once you demonstrate that, I believe it was Led Zeppelin. They, they lost their, uh, their, their, their guitarist, so they went on YouTube to find a new guitarist. And they found a 17-year-old kid in the Philippines or somewhere in South, Southeast Asia, and they hired him off the YouTube video. And, there's another, and, and, that's, and, and so he put up his videos, he put up his music for free. And as a result of that, he was able to get an absolutely extraordinary gig for a musician. And then there's another you know, story oh, Justin how Bieber. Cool. I have to say, that is so cool. That is, yeah, that's amazing. So, and this is, okay, go ahead. You're going to give another example. Yeah, another, I mean, you know, Justin Bieber was, was discovered the same way. He put up some music videos of himself, and, uh, and, and somebody noticed it and, and called him up and, 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 and got, a, got a hold of his mom and said, look, you know, your kid's really got something. I want to represent him. And, you know, so who, who are you? <laughs> why are you? Why are you looking at my kid's video? But eventually Justin Bieber became Justin Bieber. Why? Because he put up some stuff about himself on, on, uh, on, on YouTube. 
And kids are there are, any dangers in that, though, Michael, too? Because I'm visualizing, okay, your kid's putting up stuff on YouTube, and so are other people. Can you get into trouble that way, too? I mean, because you don't know who you're exactly dealing with or what you're dealing with? or. Well, look, anytime you take anything offline, obviously you've got to do your due diligence, and this is where parents have to be very, very careful. Who is your kid talking to? Uh, who is your kid? If your kid picks up the phone to have a conversation, at that point you've really got to you've really got to be monitoring what's going on because maybe that person isn't a kid. And the reality is that uh, there are a lot of really bad actors out there and they use the Internet to troll for kids. And so it's, this is, it, we're not saying that YouTube is some sort of safe zone or, or origami or magic or the stuff my kids indulge in is, uh, is somehow immune from the, uh, the realities uh, that there are really bad actors out there. We're trying to find kids. So parents have to monitor this stuff just as closely as they monitor any other form of, of, of online behavior. We don't let how our do kids you monitor, How do you monitor four kids? I mean, do you have to spend your day? I'm thinking about that. I'm just thinking about the logistics. You know, okay, you're talking, we have to monitor. Yes, I agree, and I'm sure most parents do. But so how do you actually do that all day long? Or what, how do you do it? Oh, you know, it's tough. It's, it's really tough. There's a lot of them. I mean, wherever you look, and, and basically, we've, got, we, we, we've evolved some rules about how we do things. First of all, we don't let them watch any sitcoms with actual faces of human beings um, it, because the, the, the Disney sitcoms and the other sitcoms basically teach disrespect to adults. They teach that adults are stupid, that parents are, 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 and teachers are not to be respected, and that kids are really smart and know everything, especially about sex. So we're not too big on any of that stuff. We let them watch... Phineas and Ferb, we let them watch uh, a couple of other uh, videos, but they're still young, so, so that's okay. So, so, so that's one thing we do. The second thing is that we don't allow them any, uh, anything to do with Facebook or any social media because, other than YouTube because uh, you don't know who you're talking to. And we don't want them, and kids are trusting by nature, and we don't want them to have any contact with anybody who could be, uh, who could be a bad actor. So what do you do? That's in your own home. And when you yeah. have four-year-olds, they mostly are at home and they're always supervised. But what about when your 10-year-old or 11-year-old goes to somebody else's house? How does that work? Well, you and know, they it, aren't modern. modern. Yeah, it, 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 really, it really comes down to trust. They know that we don't approve of killing games and that, and that they cannot play any games, any Internet games with killing in our home. And it really comes down to them developing a sense of, of honor and integrity. And I don't expect a 10-year-old to act honorably and <clears throat> with high integrity all day long. But the thing is that uh, we're basically creating gut-check moments for them. They know that they want to do it. They know that their friend is doing it. And I can't be there, and I don't want to be there. What I do want to have happen in those moments is for them to say to themselves, should I be doing this? And if, it's, and if, and if they know they shouldn't, let them feel uneasy about it and let them kind of uh, be with that feeling and see, and, and, and see is, this, is it worth it? So I can't... It, 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 it's not as though if they go to their friend's house and they play a killing game for an hour, they're going to come away from that and become killers or uh, have disrespect for uh, human beings or human life. Uh, if, they play that, if they play it on a continual basis, I think it will absolutely diminish their respect for human life, and that's why we don't permit it in the home. But, you know, an hour here, an hour there, it's not going to kill them. Uh, but on the other hand, it is going to create that, that gut-check moment of am I living in integrity or am I not? And that's and, and, and 
for me, that's the benefit of having them go to other people's houses where they're going to be exposed to stuff. And then also let them see that our house might be a little bit different from other people's. And maybe they'll develop some pride in the fact that we care enough to keep them from stuff that might be fun but isn't necessarily the right thing for them. Yeah, I think that's well said, and I think that, I think that works. Uh, um, you know, just from a, a social work perspective, you know, that kind of uh, upbringing, I think, it will bode well for them. And also, let, let's kind of, because you've been mentioning origami and magic and, and your sons and stuff, because they do have, it's, what, three YouTube channels, your kids, boys? <laughs> Talk to us yeah. about that. Oh, sure. Okay, yeah. I'm happy to, they'll be very happy if I give them out. Walter's... You're the marketing specialist for them, right? Well, <laughs> I'm, I, that's what I do for a living, so yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, Walter, if you go to MyWalter101, and if you go to Billy Bob Random 12345 those are the boys. Walter's is MyWalter101, and Isaac's is Billy Bob Random 12345 And then they've got a joint YouTube channel, Origami and Magic Brothers, because they like to do origami, magic, unicycling, crazy science, all kinds of stuff, and they like to do shows. So th- for them, it's not just for fun, it's their marketing, their services. They want to create a business where they're offering shows for birthday parties uh, and doing these things. And the reality is they're pretty good at it. You know, I've never seen a 10-year-old unicycle before, but one of them learned how, and then the other learned how, and they, they're out there unicycling, and uh, people's jaws are dropping, and it's kind of funny. So th- but that's, the, that's, that's, that's the stuff they do. It also creates this wonderful or this great relationship among the boys. I mean, um, I have three boys who have done similar similar things and are still doing it in their 30s, creating films together that are, uh, but started when they were your boys' age. And so uh, it sort of has, uh, I don't know if you'd call it the second, you know, a secondary game. Um, it's really a primary, but uh, your sons working together and doing something on these projects together, besides creating this stuff, it creates this great relationship among among the boys. Well, I think great relationship would be really <laughs> exaggerating the reality. <laughs> they fight they're, they're, all the time about they're, they're, what they're going to do. Yeah, I mean, they're, you know, they're, 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 they're 10-year-old twin boys, and yeah. they, 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 it's a real love-hate thing. And last yeah. night, it's the, the issue was that uh, one of them has a friend who had a friend who has a server, and uh, one of them had been whitelisted onto this kid's server, and the other kid wanted to play on the account of the boy whose account had been whitelisted for the server. Now, I'm saying this like I know what I'm talking about. Wait, what is whitelisted? Tell me. what I don't know what that is. I haven't the slightest idea. All, oh. all I know is that one had it and the other didn't, and it was a cause of a massive, uh, a massive source of upset last night. So it, it basically, I think it means that one kid could do stuff on Minecraft on, on an account, and the other had to get on his brother's account in order to do the same stuff, and did and. And, the, and uh, the one who had the account didn't want to let the brother on. You know, it's just a typical kid thing. And as a parent, you just go, ah, you know, <laughs> get me out of here. You know, when are you guys going to be 17 and get out of the house? Yeah, well, so, they're going to be fighting then, too. But that's good. It's cooperation, as you say, and, and you've got to learn how to negotiate. There are some negotiating skills that you learn with your siblings, hopefully, and you do fight. And, uh, you know, so it kind of, I think that prepares you, though, for the real world. Isn't that what it's about? Isn't that what we're talking about, the Democrats and the Republicans? <laughs> I guess so. Yeah, the, yeah, that's true. There's a little bit more reaching across the aisle in our home than there is in Congress right now. So, yeah. so that's a positive. No, I mean it's it, it's true. They, they are learning a lot of real world skills, but at the same time, these are hard won and painfully won skills. And you just sort of wish, gee, wouldn't it be nicer if they could just kind of pick this stuff up in a few years instead of having to uh, instead of everything being a competition and a battle. 
which unfortunately uh, that's how it is. You know, that's how it is uh, with twins, or at least that's how it is with our twins. Yeah, are your twins identical twins? They're they, they're so they're, technically I don't think so, but they're so hard to tell apart that I get them wrong a lot, and uh, vir- and, and I'm their dad, and virtually everybody gets gets them wrong a lot. So it's especially if if you're only seeing them in profile or you know three quarters or something like that or from the side, it's hopeless. I'm not Isaac. Oh, sorry, Walt. All the time. So, you know, it's just, uh, that doesn't help. That doesn't help matters. You're trying to establish your own individuality, and there's somebody who looks like you to the point where your father can't tell you apart from him. It's uh, got to be tough. How about their mother? Can she tell them apart? Most of the time. Yeah. Most of the time. My four-year-old's great at it, but she's at ground level, so, you know, it's much yeah. easier for her. <laughs> so what about the four-year-old? Let's talk about her, because that's almost even another generation that's emerging. Are there any differences, subtle differences in the way, because I, I, she utilizes the Internet or YouTube. I mean, I go to the Apple store, and I'm watching these babies using an iPad. Yeah, she's very adept at the iPad. She figured out the password. Uh, she was delighted. Fr- quite frankly, I was delighted that she was able to uh, figure out the password. I thought that that's a pretty neat trick for a four-year-old. Uh, she can go to Phineas. She can you you can hand her the iPad and in six seconds she's watching Phineas and Ferb, and it's it's really staggering to watch somebody who can't who can't read uh, just get on a device and go and and uh, she'll sit there and I'm not happy about the fact that she's sitting there with the headphones on because how much is that radiation going to affect her brain? And you, know, you just think about all this stuff. The other night I came home and she was sleeping. She had, the Logitech, she, she had the Logitech device under one leg, my cell phone under another, and, and uh, the remote uh, for the, the big screen uh, by her head. And, and you're just sitting there saying to yourself, these kids are not just uh, uh, consuming uh, 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 technology at voracious rates. They're also surrounded by radiation 24-7. And how good is that going to be for them? You know, so you know, you just sort of you just sort of sit there and shake your head and go, um, you know, it's like the old joke about the guy who's being strapped into the electric chair and he looks up and he says, "I hope this thing is safe." So. Yeah, and somehow there's this underlying feeling, or at least I feel that way. You know that you know it's not safe. I mean, it, it can't be, can it? I mean, it really can't. You're talking about this radiation that's constant. I mean, I don't know what you do about it, and I don't know if there is anything to do about it, but I think you're right, and especially when you're talking about growing bodies, you know, obviously developing bodies, being constantly um, exposed to that radiation all the time. Well, um, but what to do about it, I don't know. Well, all all we can do is limit the time that they're exposed to it because it is a reality. They are growing up with it. It's going to be there. It's, it's, It's what they crave. Uh, you can take away any privilege or any anything from our boys. It means nothing. But if you take away their Minecraft, uh, you know they'll scream bloody murder. So this is this is what they live for. And I mean, look, a cell phone. Cell phones were created so that a six foot one, two hundred and ten pound person could hold the thing half an inch from his ear and not experience any radiation. But the reality is that most of us aren't that size, and uh, we're cramming the thing against our ear. And, and you know, uh, who knows what who knows what we're exposing ourselves to? We're all going to find out uh, one day, but it, it 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 can't be great. So there is a, there is sort of this this creepy feeling that there's this uh, this invader that's come into your house and uh, and is doing stuff to your kids, and you don't know and you don't know what to do about it. So you know, you, there, there's a sense of uh, of powerlessness about it that's that, that's very uncomfortable as a, as a, as a parent. Uh, and then you just sort of shrug your shoulders and say, "Well, look, every generation's had its challenges, and uh, you know, I hope this one 
isn't going to be any worse than uh, than what 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 we face growing up. Yeah, I think that's all you can do. I mean, there isn't too much more. And um, but uh, let's get more now. Let's talk about some of the positives. Obviously, and we have been talking about that. But okay, so the kids are doing this. They're on YouTube. They're te- they're becoming teachers worldwide, teaching each other and uh, doing it as you say, as amateurs, not necessarily as professionals. So how does this bode for what they're going to do when they grow up and earn a living, and uh, uh, you know their expectations for earning a living? And um, how do you, what do you see in in the future for that for this for this generation? Yeah, it's a great question because people who have been growing up with a, a cooperation model are very different from the, the competition model that, that you and I grew up with and that practically every generation of kids has grown up with. And you say, what's that going to be when they go into the workplace? They're going to expect to collaborate. Uh, they're not necessarily going to expect to be compensated initially for, for what they do. It's sort of the internship model. But then at the same time, um, they're developing these really deep expertises in areas that from childhood, not just they're not just adept with technology, but they're using technology as a tool for doing these other things. Teaching is an incredibly important skill, and here they are at age 10 developing tangible experience as a teacher. Uh, uh, the specific things that they're doing, whether, whether in my kid's case it's origami, magic, unicycling, take a lot of effort and time and, uh, and skill to learn, and the patience that they're learning I'm hoping is going to sort of counteract the whole ADD nature of, of technology. And then the other thing is that the more technology you use, as I understand it, the stronger your left brain is, the calculating side of your brain, and the weaker, and the weaker your right brain or your creative uh, 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 part of your brain becomes, and that's not so great. So I'm hoping that, that because they've, they're, they're developing the creativity to do the things that they're doing with, whether it's with origami or magic or anything else, that's going to sort of counteract this whole tendency toward developing the left brain that technology appears to enhance. What do you think, and maybe this is the last question because we have about three minutes left, but how are the schools, elementary school, middle, high school, even colleges kind of incorporating this into their, or are they, curriculum? Because the kids are coming in with a whole different skill set than, say, when you and I went to school. I think very few schools are really ahead of the curve on this and that, it's, uh, and that this, is, this, is, this is the next wave and and, uh, and administrators and teachers want to jump on it, and they and they uh, and they ought to be saying to their kids, who here has a YouTube channel? What do you put up on it? Are you teaching anything? Are you learning? What do you follow? And let the kids uh, let the kids uh, sort of pave the way, and show them what they do. All right. Well, let's. Uh, I, I want to mention because I think that I'm really fascinated with those YouTube channels that your kids have. So let's. <laughs> <laughs> here's another opportunity to get it out there because oh, I think sure. people are going to be really interested in that. Yeah, so why don't you mention those again? I'll be happy to. It's my Walter 101, the numeral is 101. That's for Walter. Isaacs is Billy Bob Random 12345, and don't ask me why. Their joint, <laughs> their, their joint channel is Origami and Magic Brothers. And while we're talking about it, I run a ghostwriting company, and the, the website is businessghostghost.com. So you can look at Dad's website, too, if you ever thought about writing, writing a book, because uh, that, that's what I do, and I'm not monitoring my kids' uh, Internet behavior. So you do do certain things on your own as well? <laughs> I, uh, when I'm released from the house with my ankle bracelet, yes, in fact, I do have. And i got to tell you, this is a, it's 7 o'clock here in California, so it caused quite a stir that I was going to be away from the uh, driving the uh, carpool to the bus stop kind of thing this morning. So, so well, I, we're gonna, Then we're going to mention your website again, businessghost.com, Michael Levin. That's yes. great. Yeah, what your kids are really doing online. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Great talking to you. I learned a lot. Catherine, it is absolutely my pleasure. Thank yeah. you. Great, thanks. 
Well, we're going to take a short break right now uh, because our next guest is here, Frederick Kaufman, uh, who is a uh, who is an author. His new book is Bet the Farm: How Food Stopped Being Food. So we're going to find out how food stopped being food. We'll be back in a minute. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. You're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Do you need directions to solve financial future? If so, the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern for the Money Answers Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. If you're a golf enthusiast and looking for some great golf properties in the desert southwest, you'll want to make the Golf Realty Network your weekly stop. Hosted by Jane and Al Anderson, the Golf Realty Network is all about living where you play, on the golf side. You'll hear from the course pros and vendors, while the real estate side will bring you the top agents and brokers who know how to market or find your golf community home. Tune in to the Golf Realty Network, Wednesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety, and rebroadcast weekly on Voice America Sports. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. We are live, and you can listen to us live every Wednesday from 10 to 11. That's Eastern Time, and we archive the show at the end of the day. Joining me this morning is author Frederick Kaufman, and he is a contributing editor at uh, Harper's Magazine, and his new book is called Bet the Farm, How Food Stopped Being Food. Welcome to the show, Frederick. Nice to have you on this morning. Thank you, Catherine. And, you know, that's a question I'm going to ask you, why, you know, uh, why you came to write the book, et cetera, but I've thought about that question for a long time. How did food stop being food? And I, I've, I've, seriously, um, I, what does that mean? How does the title, how, how did you come up with the title and, you know, what motivated you to write the book? Well, it was, it was funny because the subtitle, How Food Stopped Being Food, actually came before the main title, Bet the Farm. Because I, exactly, because yeah. I knew really for a long time that the real focus was going to be what had happened to food throughout the global food system, and I was going to follow that. I had been a, a food writer for Harper's writing about you know, American cultural uh, issues with food, you know, the Food Network or kosher food or this sort of thing. And uh, I wrote a book called A Short History of the American Stomach, Food History. And then I was thinking, you know, I saw the numbers starting around 2008, and I saw that there were a lot, a lot of people who did not have any food. 
I mean, the numbers were edging towards a billion of people on Earth who just did not have enough food. And so I had a long talk with my editor, and we decided that really for the next book, it really would not be about eating. It would be about not eating. And I asked a simple question, which is, why can't healthy, delicious, and inexpensive food be available for everybody on Earth? seemed like a simple thing, since uh, we actually produce more than twice the food necessary to feed everybody. Why isn't it actually getting into their mouths? And so I started following this, uh, following this story. And, uh, you know, and I want to just ask you this question, because uh, and, and obviously you talk about this in the book, but, I mean, half the world are starving and the other half is, are overweight or obese. And so even the people who are overweight or obese, it seems to me, the food they're eating isn't healthy. That answers, you know, um, and why is that? Why, do, why can half of us be eating and the other half not, and uh, the quality of the food that we do eat isn't good anyway? So I don't know. Is that two questions, three questions? Oh, that's a lot. Of, you know, that, that's, <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's a whole cornucopia of questions. Yeah, but I think, that, right. I think that you've got your finger on it, which is that we're looking at a syndrome in the world, and the syndrome has been called stuffed and starved, so that the same kind of forces which are taking food away from lots of people's mouths are actually giving the wrong kind of food to uh, a lot of other people. And so instead of being somewhat vague here, let's, let's go for specifics. So for instance, I tried to figure out why can't everybody eat, and I thought, why don't I start with industrial food that promises to feed the world? And what I meant by that, what I, or what I went to was takeout pizza. I went to the corporate headquarters of Domino's Pizza, and I said, why can't you guys feed the world? You say that you can feed the world, and why can't everybody eat takeout pizza? And I, this was somewhat tongue-in-cheek, of course, uh, because, of course, pizza is just the kind of food that is not particularly healthy and could conceivably lead to uh, uh, overweight. And uh, yet the people at Domino's and all their suppliers and Tyson Foods, the largest supplier of beef products in the world, beef and pork, they all promised me that, given their own devices and left to themselves, they actually could feed the world. But, of course, what they're feeding the world is not precisely food. This is getting back to the whole issue of how food stopped, stopped being food. And what, what does that mean? What does it mean that it stopped being food? Certainly it, it tastes good, and certainly we can eat it. But as I, as I examined what they were looking at and what they were concentrating on, they were not concentrating on food so much as they were concentrating on their sales, their spreadsheets, their indices, and all these other things that were just kind of like right to the right or right to the left of the food. And the food in and of itself was also a little bit different than I thought it was going to be. Let's, should, we, should we talk about what actually is a pizza, what constitutes a pizza? Yeah, a pizza. You know, I thought when I was reading it in the book, I kind of had to put it down. And so the truth was, yeah, it made me never wanted to eat a pizza again. But anyway, <laughs> go on. <laughs> well, look, I like pizza, and I, I, love, too. I, I love pepperoni pizza, but I, I decided I would actually look at the anatomy of a pepperoni pizza. And what I found are commodities. Now, what are commodities? Commodities are globally and transnationally traded food products which are interchangeable in international markets for, for money. So in other words, wheat and soy, these are all international commodities that are traded in Chicago and Minneapolis and Mumbai and all across the world. So what's a pizza? You have commodity wheat with commodity soy crush, that's what vegetable oil is, topped with some commodity tomatoes, and then commodity mozzarella cheese made out of commodity milk with commodity beef and commodity pork on top. And so 
all of a sudden what you saw was that the pizza itself, the ingredients were not really food. They were just placeholders for money. And so the pizza was actually a play of all these different globally traded commodities. And I started getting very interested in this global trade and commodity and trying to figure out how did food get its price and how did these commodities get its price and what this meant for the people who couldn't afford it. All right, so let's talk about that. And I guess the term you is the financialization of food. Is that the term we're looking at? Yeah, I think that there, there is a whole movement uh, a part of the food movement, which calls itself the, the global food justice movement. In other words, the, this is part of the UN millennial uh, goals, the idea that, that really eating a basic diet is part of the basic human right. And that's the global food justice movement. And part of this food justice movement has been this understanding that food has been what is now called financialized. And what that means is that food has been perceived by, let's say, Wall Street or other hedge funds, uh, sovereign wealth funds, as being a very good place to invest a lot of money. And there's some very good reasons for this, Catherine. I mean, if, we, if, you, if you look at the financial meltdown of 2008, you saw that the stock market was going down and the credit markets were going down and real estate was going down. Where do you put your money? And there is a very strong perception that food and fresh water and arable land would be a very good place to put your money going forward. And so you actually saw tremendous amounts, hundreds of billions of new dollars pouring in various ways into these sectors and really upsetting the global food system. Okay, how does it, for the layperson, how, when you say it upset the global food system, what happened? How did it do this? Well, I think, I think the first thing to understand is that people don't go hungry because there isn't enough food. People go hungry because they can't afford the price of food. And that's one of the reasons why we have, so, we have more Americans than ever on, on food stamps in this country. And it's one of the reasons why you might have noticed that your grocery bill is going up uh, and why it will, uh, why it will continue uh, to go up. But how, what, what's happening here is that... Is that uh, how can I put this in the, in, in the simplest sort of way? The more, in simple economic terms, there's laws of supply and demand, right? Right. And what's happened, what happened is that there is just a, this huge increase in demand from non-food users. In other words, uh, Wall Street realized that if they kept on buying on the futures markets, these, mar- these, these huge commodity markets, all sorts of promises to buy wheat, they could then hold that wheat and hoard that wheat. And, of course, the, price, the more they held and the more they hoarded, the more the price would go up. So they, it was an artificial increase on the demand side. And it's actually been called by some of the hedge fund, fund managers as a uh, as demand shock. What I found so interesting here, Catherine, was that I was, I was a food writer. And, and the next thing I knew, <laughs> I, I, was, I was a financial writer. I, I, somehow this was, and this is kind of of the essence in terms of how food stopped being food. At, at a certain point, food actually became a financial derivative. So remember food those financial derivatives? Like, remember those? Yeah, so Frederick, so you were saying like, so food is like, like I don't know, like silver or gold or whatever it is. Is that it? <laughs> or a mortgage-backed security. <laughs> or a mortgage-backed security. And that's it, what the, ah, okay, now we're, I'm getting it, yeah. Exactly. And so uh, if you followed, if you, for instance, if you've been following the price of gold, it's, since 2008 it has just gone through the roof. And there has been what a lot of people have called a commodities 
bubble that has affected food. The, in other words, the price is just bubbling up and up and up and up. And it seems to, yeah, certainly after this past summer's drought, there's every indication that the price of food will, will continue uh, to rise. And so what I'm trying to say here is that this is a big problem. This is a big problem. When we start thinking about food as just another financial derivative, like a mortgage-backed security or like gold or oil, that that's a big problem because food is, food is different. Food is not an index or food, food is not some sort of virtual entity. Uh, when food stops being food, there's, a, there's, there's tremendous ramifications, not just, and it's also not just in the third world or in the developing world. I mean, we see it in America. And uh, part of the research for the book was tracing all the revolutions in the Arab Spring and perceiving that a lot of these came from skyrocketing prices of food. Uh, and people in Egypt, for instance, paying 40% of their weekly paycheck on food. And I think now in our post-9-11 world, we see that we're, we are really no longer isolated from uh, revolutionary forces and, and very angry forces throughout the rest of the world. And one of the big dangers is skyrocketing food prices. That's a real, it's a real danger to the social fabric of the world. That's really interesting. So in other words, all of these or many of these uprising or like what happened in Egypt and around the world has to do with people being hungry, not being able, having enough food, not being able to purchase the food. Yeah, and I mean, so think about it, Catherine. What, 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 what are going to put you and I marching down the street very angrily? I mean, I'm, I'm not really a, a street marcher per se, but I have two kids, and I think that when a quart of milk starts costing $20 and a pound of hamburger meat starts costing $40, that's when we start getting angry. And that's kind of precisely what started happening in Egypt and throughout the North African and uh, Middle Eastern world. When we're paying 40% of our weekly paycheck on food, then I think we're going to start considering regime change, you know, sadly. All right, so that's one half of it, right? So they're not being able to purchase food because we don't have enough money to purchase right. the food, and Wall Street control is controlling that, I guess. And so uh, the and other not, part is be, the food that we are able to, let's say, I'm able to buy what I, I mean, I can buy the food that I want to buy, but the food that I'm buying and I'm, isn't even food anymore, and I think that's the other part of it. It's, it's whatever the makeup of the food is. It's unhealthy. It's, it's I always find it's, seems to me full of chemicals, even when I try to buy things that aren't full of chemicals. The, the, the food that's available is going to make me sick and ill and fat and overweight and obese. Listen, Catherine, I think the real right? hot point here, I mean, absolutely, I think the real hot point and the emotional point here where all of this has been focused recently is, of course, in genetically modified foods. And uh, just, uh, just last night in California, Proposition 37 uh, was defeated. And Proposition 37 was uh, the idea that would have made it into a law that any uh, food item that had genetically modified food in it would have to be labeled. So it was, it was, a, it was a push towards transparency of genetically modified uh, food. And a lot of people in, the, uh, in food justice and a lot of people in the global food movement have really seen this as, a, as an essential part of moving forward in terms of just that part of, of what you're saying, food uh, not becoming food anymore. I spent about, oh, a year traveling around this country, if you can believe this, from one genetic modification laboratory to another. I, I met a woman uh, in the Midwest who has spent her life trying to create the square tomato. The square tomato, because that would be good. It would, uh, you'd get more per box. Yet I also met another woman, uh, Dr. Pam Ronald at mm -hmm. UC Davis, 
who is actually creating uh, rice that is, uh, through genetic alteration, that is immune to the number one rice blight in Asia. So what I discovered here, what I, what I, what I found was that there are, the people are doing very different kinds of research into genetic, into genetic modification. And we have to start thinking about, okay, who are the really bad players here and who might actually need some support from us in academia? And so I think it's clear that Dow and Monsanto and Roundup Ready, these are very problematic. I am not sure that labeling is the answer, is the way to get Monsanto out of its monopolistic practices. I have a somewhat different position, and I think one of the issues here is the, uh, the food patent laws, how intellectual property is that rights are given to seeds and genetically altered foods. And I think if we reform those, we take some of the money out of it, it's going to be a much more effective way of pushing Monsanto and Dow out of the business and making food a little bit more like food. So are you saying, uh, Frederick, that so genetically modified food or altered food is not necessarily all bad? There are, like you mentioned, the example of the rice um, that isn't subject to these blights. That's a good way of modifying, let's say, the rice. So there's, it's not just genetically modified food is bad. It depends on how it's modified. It may be for the good. Is that it? Is that what you're well, saying? Well, I think, or, I, you know, this is, a, once again, this is a very controversial position, and a lot of people are just flat out against any genetic modification. I, I am just a, a little bit more agnostic in the sense that I think it's always dangerous whenever we, we completely turn our back on science, if you, if you look back on history. And this is, this is a, a fair bit of food science is headed in this, in this direction. Now, I have endless email exchanges with farmers and, 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 and people who I, we agree in our heart on these issues. And so this is, this is a somewhat of a nuanced point of view. But yes, I would say that, for instance, Pamela Ronald, with her rice that is resistant to this, to this virus called xanthomonas, Right? That might actually be a positive. And what is ironic and what is tragic is that nobody is interested in this rice because there's not enough money in it for them. In other words, Monsanto and Dow are very interested in their Roundup Ready crops because it allows them to sell their seeds and to sell their, their herbicide, right? their pesticide and their herbicide. But there's no money in, let's say, a, a potentially uh, life-saving rice and so nobody wants it. And so what, I, what I'm trying to get at in this book is as food stops being food, it becomes a legal construct, let's say, it becomes intellectual property law, or it just becomes a money question. And that's a big problem. We have to start thinking about what are the real issues in food and how can we really solve them. And it's, it is conceivable that genetic alteration might be a way to get towards that solution. I reject, I reject flat out corporate foods assertion that genetically modified foods will feed the world and let us take care of that. I think we need to take a lot closer look at it than that. By the same token, I, I think that it would, be, it would be foolish to completely turn our back on it, particularly in our global environment, when other countries, particularly China and India and countries in Africa, are just going whole hog into this area. Whole hog, I guess, is the... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, whole hog. Well, you know, the other thing is, right, food is a continuum. Food has always been a continuum. There are no pigs found in nature, right? Man created the pig, man created the chicken, man created the apple. Really, almost every food we eat, we've had, it, we've had a hand in. Of course, we've done it through all sorts of all sorts of methods over the years. 
uh, genetic alteration is, is, is a very different method. And so the debate is, is this a real break or is this part of the continuum? And I think we have to ask that question. That's the real question. And I guess the real reason, one of the real reasons, one of the reasons why you wrote the book, um, what, what, Frederick, what about this whole thing about eating? I mean, this is, I don't know, because we get this I, well, constantly, at least I do, bombarded with, you know, buy fresh, buy food that's, that's uh, farm fresh from the area that you live in. What is right. the, how does that fit into this picture? Because that seems to be a big initiative. Um, well, local food, yeah, local food local and food. fresh food and yeah. slow food and food made by farmers who you know and who are, who are you know, who are local this is the ultimate solution to the food problem. I mean, you're, ap- you're absolutely right, is that what we need is the integration of farmers and urban centers working together, you know, understanding how those markets are, uh, are working together. And the farmers themselves, um, not necessarily organic, but using agro, what are called agroecological methods, in other words, the, the methods which are, which are best for that particular place. Organic is fabulous, but of course we, we again see that that label has also been co-opted by very large corporate interests, and so organic itself has become big business. So instead of saying organic, why don't we just say agroecological? That is the ultimate solution, I think. Remember, about uh, 2 billion people on Earth are uh, small farmers, and they feed half the people on Earth. So we have to be very wary of claims by large industrial food that they can feed the world and don't worry about those small farmers. We have to do it in a big way. Those small farmers are essential and really the key. Now, but however, uh, yeah, go on. I want to yeah. just throw something in here because I have a friend who is a big agribusiness person, and yeah. he says that if you, let's say you live in an area and you keep buying, let's say, from the same farm all the time, well, if, then if that farm is subject to any kind of, well, I'm, I'm saying acid rain or any kind of stuff yeah, in sure. the soil that's not good for you, if you keep buying from that same local farm all the time, that can be a problem as well. I mean, that you have to kind of maybe, you know, I guess buy from different farms or... Yeah, it, the, the, the food, food, there's no simple solution to food, and, that, and that's a very good point. And, I, you know, I don't think we should start, uh, you know, getting paranoid about any of the food we eat. I don't think we should be paranoid necessarily about our Snickers bars or fearful that a local farmer might have a local condition. I think, you know, we, once again, we have to uh, be very reasonable and kind of get back to a more basic and natural relationship with our food. Sounds funny to have a relationship with your food, but we've been so divorced from the food. We've been so removed from it. We actually have to start talking about how we can get back into that positive relationship uh, with real food and what that means. So many people are completely divorced from what they're eating. And I think part of that is, is this is transnational food production, which has kind of taken over everything uh, in terms of people's relationship with what they're, what they're putting in their mouths for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And also there's a, there's a big, there, there are problems. There are problems, which is that with, with large industrial food, that's, you know, that's monoculture, you're seeing that a great deal of the world's population and a great deal of the world's farms are really just making a couple of crops. They're making corn, they're making soy, 
they're making wheat, and these are very highly genetically specific breeds of corn, soy, and wheat. And so we are, because of this lack of diversity, we are even more vulnerable than ever to disease, to acid rain, to all of these kinds of, of possible uh, negatives in our food supply. And so we really, you know, one of the arguments is towards diversity in, uh, in our food supply. Uh, I always think diversity is a good thing. <laughs> Yeah, me too. Uh, yeah, I, I do. And I think, but you, you just touched on something, and we only have a few minutes left, but I think this is really important, our relationship with food. And our relationship with food, and I think uh, we are divorced from the food that we eat because that kind of fits into the kind of lifestyle that we live. We are divorced from a lot of different kinds of relationships, including food. We do things kind of on automatic. I mean, we would go to, you know, run into a grocery store after, you know, working eight hours a day and just kind of grab the food off the shelf and, not really thinking about what they actually buy, men too, but um, and so we are. Catherine, you, you've you've just come to the essence. I think really the essence of my message in in, in the book. I, you, you just you just said it, and I, I think the issue here for me most of all is that really in the past ten years or so, we have really had this intense, passionate love affair with what I call the virtual, with 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 virtual reality, with indexes, with derivatives. With all of these, all these elements that are just one step away from reality, and maybe it's okay if we're doing this with a video game or doing this with uh, avatars of some sort. But when food becomes an index or a legal construct or a political football or a financial derivative, there are there are terrible consequences. And so I think we have to we have to move away from our romance with the virtual, and we have to get back to the real. Yeah, I think that absolutely. I think that is well said. And in order for people to do that, they need to go out and get your book. Uh, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> yes. How's that for a segue into buying the book, Bet the Farm: How Food Stops Being Food? And also, um, we can buy that online, bookstores everywhere. Yeah. Where do you suggest we go to keep stay in contact with you in terms of a website and getting more information? Um, well, my my site is. Uh, very easy to remember, AmericanStomach.com, <laughs> and, and, and pretty much whatever I'm up to, I'll, uh, I'll post on that site, and, uh, you know, and I tweet Frederick Kaufman, and I, I Facebook, and all those virtual things, which uh, my publicist tells me I must do to sell books. Yeah, well, you do have to do that, right? You've got to get the word out. And thank you, Catherine, for helping to get the word out. Yeah, it's terrific. And also the Huffington Post. You write for the Huffington Post, right? The Huffington Post. I'm doing a piece about GMOs for Slate, about Proposition uh, 37. I'm, I'm going to be in Ethiopia next month doing a piece for, uh, for Harper's Magazine. Actually, it's not next month. It's in two weeks. I better get my shots. Yeah. <laughs> what shots do you have to get? Um, actually, no, I'm, I'm all caught up with my hepatitis yeah. shots. I just need to get my malaria pills is what I need. One last question. I just wanted, because you said you have two kids, right? Go I do. Yeah, okay. So what do you do for your own children? Like, I like to kind of end on a you know, personal note, like just what, when you're shopping for them for food, for instance, and how do, what do you say to them in terms of, I don't know how old they are, but... Um, I have two teenagers. Okay. And uh, my daughter became a vegetarian and really transformed the way the family eats. And it made me realize that, that yes, those decisions that we're making uh, in our household really have tremendous effects on the world. And my wife, my, Lizzie, she loves to cook. 
and uh, and we are always out there going to. Uh, we live in New York City, so we go to Chinatown, Chinatown to buy our groceries. We go all over to buy our groceries. We come home, we have we 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 cook these crazy dinners, and we have a lot of fun with it. And uh, that's what I do. I think okay. I think that's going to renew our relationship. Right. All right. So then you you kind of you do what you write about. I mean, you are conscious of the food. You've got two teen, two teenagers, and you are very. It sounds to me very aware of what you eat and how you eat and who you eat it with. <laughs> anyway, uh, we have to say goodbye. Frederick Kaufman, and the book again is Bet the Farm, How Food Stopped Being Food. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning. It's been a pleasure. Thank yeah, you. It's been a pleasure. I'm Catherine Zox. I am your social worker with a microphone, and you are listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com, World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and uh, we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.